Hi everyone, this is Pastor Brett with SBBC, and I would like to welcome you to another episode of Growing in Grace. Our team would like to thank you for continuing to support us in prayer and love, and our prayer is that the Word of God continues to impact your life as it does ours. For this episode, we are going to make a contextual shift in the epistle that we are going to be overviewing. Last time we spent our time looking at the city and the epistle of Ephesians, and at the body of Christ as explained by Paul. If Ephesians was centered around the body of Christ, then the epistle of Colossians, our study for today, most certainly is centered around the head of that body, namely Christ himself and the relationship we should have to achieve fullness in him. The city of Colossae itself is also quite a shift from the grandeur that was Ephesus, Located about 130 miles to the east of the cultural juggernaut, Colossae was disappointing in comparison. Its time of grandeur had long passed some 500 years before. Although it was nothing to boast about in terms of economy or culture, in the days of Paul it did rest in the shadow of the 8,000-foot Mount Cadmus. This gave the city a beautiful backdrop and scenery, along with providing it clean and crisp mountain water. Due to the fact that it rested at the junction of the main north-south and east-west trade routes of Asia Minor and modern-day Turkey, it became a popular stop for travelers of all kinds to relax and refresh themselves. It belonged to a group of three sister cities being grouped with the nearby Laodicea and Heropolis. Originally, Colossae was an important stop because of its positioning. However, by Paul's day, the main road had been rerouted through Laodicea thus bypassing Colossae altogether and leading to its decline in the rise of its neighboring cities. The church in Colossae was almost certainly founded after the ministry of Paul in Ephesus during his third missionary journey. Although Paul had never been there personally, two prominent leaders in the Colossian church had been personally converted by Paul in Ephesus, returning to their home city, gospel in hand. Seemingly being written around the year 61 AD, the city was truly feeling the effects of many troubling world events. During this time, all three sister cities suffered heavy damage from a massive earthquake. A tsunami ravaged the Egyptian coast, causing an economic and agricultural crisis. And at this time, Nero was Caesar, and he continued his spiral into madness by brutally murdering his own mother and becoming more and more outspoken about his hatred for Christians. This hatred drove Nero to light Rome on fire and frame the local Christians for the devastation that followed. Despite all of this going on around them, Paul focuses and writes another epistle that would later be classified as an occasional letter, meaning that it was written in reaction to a particular issue and occasion within the church. This issue was the cancer of sin, and it was growing rapidly in this small church, and Paul was ready to confront and eradicate it. From the beginning of this letter, Paul has a clear mission in mind, and he beautifully structures this epistle to maximize readability and an ease of application. We see the pastoral heart of Paul in that despite the city being small and increasingly irrelevant in terms of culture, Paul gives them the vital leadership and accountability they needed to move on and grow stronger. In what was certainly one of the smallest, if not the smallest, church in Asia Minor, Paul saw that theologically the deity of Christ had come into question and Paul being Paul, along with the Holy Spirit, wanted to see sound doctrine and unity prevail. From what we have learned from archaeological excavation in the area, the average-sized home 
could hold about 15 people at most in the main atrium. Drawing from other texts in the New Testament, there were three different houses in the city of Colossae that made up the church, putting the congregation size at around 45 people. However, despite that we would consider a small and barely viable church by modern standards, in this letter, Paul talks more about the church's fullness in Christ than in any other epistle. This is not a coincidence, and its purpose is one that we all need to take to heart. When we look around at massive churches ranging from hundreds to thousands, Paul makes it clear that the fullness of Christ is not achieved by numbers. It's achieved by diligence to the Word of God. Over 50% of all churches in the United States have 100 people or less, and yet we still feel like we're doing something wrong by not having an increasingly large congregation size. It is clear that God wants high quality, not necessarily high quantity, in his church. Therefore, to achieve the fullness of Christ in our church, we don't need to have an activity center, a full staff for every age, or a full array of ministry with all the latest gadgets. God will provide all these things in his timing and when we have reached the necessary level of spiritual maturity. This is important for us to remember because the unsaid belief in this country is that a church the size of a stadium can bring you closer to God while the small church is simply biding its time until they can buy its own stadium. Paul shows that even a church with a maximum of 45 people can be a pillar of light and attain and grow in the fullness of Christ. Looking at our epistle, Paul has four major points. In chapter 1, Paul spends the first 12 verses talking about the goals that Christ has through us. Starting in verse 10, he says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Quote. Paul clearly challenges us to walk in a manner worthy of Christ, that is, to love and obey God through the power that he has given us. This begs the question of why God has the right to expect us to attain these certain goals. And so, for the second half of the first chapter, he expounds on the supremacy of Christ and how he the rights over the universe, but on every one of us, everything from the possessions that we own to the very breath in our lungs. It is all his. Paul at this point shifts from his first two points, which are knowledge-based, to his third and fourth point that revolve around action. Covering all of chapter two, Paul's third point is about the struggles and baggage that we all still carry. As believers, we are all called from darkness into light and from death into life. Yet we could be believers for 25 years, and if we grew up in an environment hearing about how worthless and broken we are, we still struggle with looking at ourselves through that filter. Paul emphatically pushes us to nail this to the cross and look at ourselves through the filter of Jesus Christ. This simple action will revolutionize the way that we not only see ourselves, but the way that we see the world around us. For the remainder of the epistle, Paul drives us to focus on the big picture and on who the ruler of our life really is. If we are going to achieve fullness in Christ as individuals and as a church body, 
we must fix our eyes on heaven and leave our baggage behind. Paul says in chapter 3, starting in verse 12, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called into one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. End quote. What an absolutely wonderful passage. If we want to see change and growth in our church family, then we must diligently apply ourselves to study, prayer, fellowship, discipleship, accountability, and being knit together by the love and passion of God. And the same love and passion must be directed to the lost people in our world. If the glorification of God and the expansion of the gospel is our focus, then we will see growth and change. This starts with every individual in the church leaving behind the idols of our life and working passionately to become the leaders God calls us to be. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for instilling into our heart this beautiful gift of love. Thank you for plucking us out of the fire and bringing us into your family, sealing us with you forever. Help us to take these words to heart. Help us to transform the way that we not only see ourselves, but the way that we see the world around us so that we can better rise to the challenge, we can better rise to the commission that you have given us. Help us to be a church worthy of your name and worthy of your call. Help the gospel to expand and grow in all of our lives so that we may be able to show others the love that has transformed us. Again, we thank you and we praise you and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening. If you would like to know more about us or to see more of our content, please visit us at our website at sbbcpittsburgh.org. That's s-b-b-c-p-i-t-t-s-b-u-r-g dot o-r-g and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you again and until we meet again, may God bless you and keep you.